passage this morning is Proverbs 11. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked falls into it instead. When his mouth, with his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Thanks, Mallory. Well, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Proverbs, and there is a whole lot within this chapter. And so as, if you were here with us last week, you kind of heard me explain our, our plan of attack uh, for preaching through uh, these Proverbs, really starting in the actual Proverbs start in chapter 10 and extend through chapter 31, verse 9. And so we normally preach through uh, just verse by verse uh, passages of Scripture uh, during our, as we preach on Sunday mornings. Um, if we did that through um, every single one of these Proverbs, we would literally be here until 2056, okay? I calculated it, trust me. And um, I, I probably, I may not be alive then, and uh, some of you, never mind, I won't touch that. But, uh, and so our plan is, is we're going to do kind of through these Proverbs like we did last week. Um, 
And so we're going to take a, a chapter a week. And so, and during each week, we're going to focus on just really those, those key proverbs within that chapter that are, that are kind of key themes within that chapter that are repeated often within, within that particular chapter. And we're going to preach on, on those specific proverbs. And so last week, if you remember in chapter 10, there are a whole lot of verses. There are a whole lot of proverbs there. That chapter is really dominated in a, in a, in a lot of ways when it comes to this theme of, of speech and our mouth and how we talk and communicate with others. And so when I preached last Sunday, uh, chapter 10, those were the specific Proverbs then that we focused on, the ones that the chapter focused on, the ones on the speech and the mouth and how we communicate with others and how we talk. When it comes to chapter 11, though, the main theme and, and really the key verses, really one-third of all the verses in chapter 11 deal with this topic, and it's everyone's favorite topic. It's the reason you woke up this morning and came here. You came here for this topic, money. That, that's, that's, that's the main theme. I was supposed to get a little bit of laughter, but that, that's the main theme of, of this chapter, chapter 11 here, that one-third of all the verses in chapter 11 deal with this topic of money and how we use money, and how we handle money, and how we think about and view money. And so then I know when some of you hear that, your initial response and reaction is, well, that's great. This sermon is going to be completely irrelevant to me this morning because I don't have any money, right? Others of you, when you hear that, you roll your eyes and you're thinking, okay, I've heard this sermon before where the greedy preacher gets up and puts a guilt trip on all of us to try and give money to the church, Right? Others of you, when you hear that we're going to talk about money, you're like, you're dreading the next however long this sermon's going to be because the whole idea of money throughout your life has brought nothing but, but stress and conflict and a whole host of other negative emotions and negative situations and circumstances in your life. And so the last thing you want to hear about when you come to church then is is money. And so then don't get me wrong, I, I understand and I get like all those responses, right? I, I, I understand them completely in a lot of ways. The same time, like, like if you had one of those responses, like don't, don't tune me out over, over the next 40 minutes. Instead, I, I would strongly encourage you to stay engaged because this, this whole topic of money it's really, really important. Like, it's really significant. It's not just a small little issue. Instead, it's really important. And let, let me give you, just from the get-go, four reasons, just real quick, for why this topic of money is so important. And the first reason is this. If you have a handout, these are on your handout. First reason is this, is because the Bible, and especially the Proverbs, talk a whole lot about money. Like, did you know there, there are around 2,300 verses in the Bible on money? There are over, and I tried to count, so I'm probably off here, but there are over 80 Proverbs that are specifically about money. And so then this is a, a really important topic, right? Because the Bible and the Proverbs talks a whole lot, talks a whole lot about it. Second reason money is important is because our use of money 
exposes and reveals a lot about our hearts. Our use of money exposes and reveals a whole lot about our hearts. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what we do with our money, how we handle money, our view of money, tells a whole lot about our hearts and what we treasure and what we truly desire in our hearts. Third reason money is, is important is because if we're not careful, then we can love money more than we love Jesus. Or another way to say it is, is money is really, really dangerous. Like money doesn't tell you that. Possessions usually don't come with like a big warning sign. But the, of those 2,300 verses in the Bible about money, most of them are warnings about money. Most of, them's, most of them explain the danger of money. Like 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just listen to that, right? Then verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like that, that's the danger of money. That if we're not careful, money and the, the enticement of possessions can lure us away, to, can cause us to wander from the faith, can cause us to love and worship money more than we love and worship Jesus. And this is especially true for, for us, right? Like our church meets in a county that worships money, that worships materialism, that worships possessions. Like that, we, we meet like in the dead center of all that all around us, just calling out to us and wanting to us to buy into the allurement and enticement of, of money and, and possessions. And so this danger is especially relevant for every single one of us in this room this morning. On the flip side, though, the fourth reason for why money is important is this. It's because if used properly, money can be used to do great good in God's kingdom. Money can be used to do great good in God's kingdom. In other words, throughout Scripture, you don't just see warnings about the danger of money, but you also see glimpses of how, if used properly, money can be used to do great good in God's kingdom. Like, think about that, right? Money can be used to help to plant churches. Money can be used to send missionaries overseas. Money can be used to care for those who are in need and orphans and widows and the poor and, and so many others. Like those, those, are just, those are just a few reasons, right? Four, just four reasons we could have given a lot more. And those, those aren't my reasons, right? Those are reasons straight from Scripture for why money is so important. That money can be used to do great good, or on the flip side, money is really dangerous and can completely and utterly destroy your faith. So because of that then, like, we, we need wisdom. Like, we desperately then, if, if money can, is that, is that dangerous and can cause us to just wander from the faith, or if used properly, if money can be used to do great good in God's kingdom, like, here, here we are then. How are we going to use it? How are we going to handle it? How are we going to view it? And in order to make right, honoring, 
good decisions when it comes to those questions. Like, we need God's wisdom. We, we, we desperately need God's wisdom to show us how to properly handle money, to properly view money, to properly use money in our lives. And this is where the book of Proverbs comes in for us this morning. That Proverbs gives us practical wisdom. It gives us practical guidance for how to handle money and use money and view money in our lives. And that's especially true when it comes to Proverbs chapter 11 this morning. That within Proverbs 11 here, what we're going to see here in this chapter are six principles just six principles from Proverbs 11 when it, comes to, when it comes to money. Six principles that Proverbs 11 teaches us about money and how to view money and have a right understanding of money and how to handle and use money in our lives. And my hope this morning, my prayer this morning, is that as we see these six principles this morning about money from Proverbs 11, that it would fill us with wisdom. It would fill us with wisdom when it comes to how we handle and how we use and, and view money. In our lives. And so here, here are the six principles. The first one is this, and you see this on your handout there. The first principle Proverbs 11 teaches us about money is this is that making money by deceiving others is detestable in God's sight, but God delights in honest business. So this is what Solomon teaches us right from the very get go in the very first proverb there in verse one. Look there with me. It says this it says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight is his delight. And so what Solomon's referring to here, this, this balance that he's referring to here is a, is a scale that, that a merchant would use when he, when he sold goods in that day. And so he'd use this scale that, that basically was this, and y'all know, most of y'all know what I'm talking about here, but it was basically a bar. And on that bar, he had two dishes or two plates on each side of the bar. And so then if someone came in and said they wanted to buy five pounds of grain, then you would put a five pound weight in one of the plates, and then you would pour five pounds of grain into the other plate. And the way that you knew that you pour, poured five pounds of grain into the other weight, or into the other plate, is because uh, the, the plates would balance. Because there's, you get that, five pound weight here, five pounds of grain there, there's a balance there, hence the word balance there in verse one. Some business owners, though, and merchants were tricky, right? And they sought to defraud those who came in to buy grain. And so one example and why they would do that is they would take that five-pound weight and they would, they would basically hollow out the, the inside of it and so it would, they would make it four, a four-pound weight instead of five-pound weight and then they would kind of fill in that hole with some clay or something like that so the person who was coming to buy some grain would know that. And so then they would put the, the four-pound weight um, on the, the one plate, and they would pour four pounds of grain, but the person who's buying the grain thinks it's a five-pound uh, um, weight there, and that they're actually buying five pounds of grain, when in reality, they're only buying four pounds of grain, but they're, but they're being charged for five pounds. Is everybody with me? God hates that. That's, that's detestable in his sight. It, it, it repulses in other words, when you cheat and deceive and defraud others into, into thinking that they're getting more than what they're really paying for in that way, then just simply so you can make a few extra dollars and make some extra, extra money. Like God literally hates that. It, it repulses him. 
Like God doesn't want us to cheat and deceive and defraud others simply to make a few extra, extra dollars. And so, so think about this, right? Think about some practical ways that this happens. And literally think about how even at your workplace that this could potentially happen. Or even how you as an individual could, could do this, right? Facebook Marketplace. You sell a couch and you price it and label it like new. But in the back of your mind, you know your dog threw up on that thing 20 times. And you know that thing's not like new. But you're trying to pass it off and sell it as is. You're lying. You're defrauding. That's a false balance. It's an abomination in the sight of God. Right? Or another example would be when you overpromise something, and you under-deliver, over-promise, under-deliver on, on a job or you're working on or on a job you're, you're bidding on, you're charging this much for this service, you're charging this much for labor and materials, but you only deliver this much. Like anytime you knowingly deceive others, by not giving them the goods or services worth the price that you're charging for, then that's an abomination to the Lord. It repulses him. He, he, it, he detests that. And the reason it repulses him is because it completely goes against his character. Like God's, not, God's not tricky. He's not deceptive. He's not dishonest. Instead, he's trustworthy, he's, he's truthful, he can be trusted. And so we should, we should too. So, and then really think, think about this in, in your life. How might this be happening at your workplace? And is there an opportunity that you can speak into it? It's not a small thing. And if you can't speak into it, then you really need to seriously consider finding another job where you can be honest and not defraud and deceptive. And Second principle then would be this. Money will not save you from God's judgment, but righteousness will. Money will not save you from God's judgment, but righteousness will. Will. This is what Solomon says a, a few verses later in verse 4. Look there with me. He says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So the day of wrath here that Solomon's referring to here in verse 4 is a reference to the final day of judgment at the end of the world. That on that day, like it won't matter how much money is in your bank account. On that day, it won't matter how big your house is. On that day, it won't matter how nice a car you have. On that day, it won't matter what your stock portfolio looks like. Like none of those things will profit you and benefit you on the day of judgment. Like you can't buy salvation. You can't buy being rescued from the judgment of God. That none of those things will be able to save you and rescue you from God's judgment on that day. Like, think about this, right? You might be able to buy 
anything you want to in this life. But you can't buy salvation from the judgment of God for your sins. Instead, the only thing that will deliver you from judgment isn't your riches, it's not money. Instead, the only thing that will deliver you from God's judgment on that day is righteousness. That's what he says there, right? In the second line of verse four, he says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So so riches won't deliver us from from death, meaning eternal death, God's wrath on, on the day of judgment, but righteousness will. And, and he repeats this again a few verses later, a couple verses later in verse 6. Look there with me. He says, the righteousness of the upright, here comes our word again, delivers them. You see it? Again, two verses later in verse 8. The righteousness is, here's our word again, delivered from trouble. Mentions this again one last time in the second line of verse 9. He says, but by knowledge, the righteous are, there's our word again, delivered. That word delivered over and over and over and over again. Like four times in those six verses, Solomon says that the one and only thing that will deliver us from the judgment of God, that day of wrath, it's not riches, it's righteousness. But here's the kicker. If that's true, then that's a problem, isn't it? Like if righteousness is the only way that we're going to be delivered from God's wrath on the day of judgment, like that's a really big problem. And the reason it's a really big problem is because Romans chapter 3 Verse 10 says that there is no one righteous. No, not even one. And so what are we going to do if riches aren't going to profit us on that day? And if only righteousness is going to deliver us, then we're all doomed. Like we're all stuck. And so... Is there, is, there, is there any hope? And the answer is yes. There is. If we can somehow, some way, be made righteous. If that can happen, when, when the day of judgment comes, we can be delivered. And so then how in the world can unrighteous people be made righteous? And do you know what the answer is? The answer is Jesus. That Jesus came and he lived the perfectly righteous life that we couldn't live. And in doing so, he serves as the representative for all those who would trust in him by faith. In other words, God counts us as righteous because of Jesus' righteousness. Like he's our representative. And so then what he did, God considers us as having done. And, And because of that then, since he's perfectly righteous, 
then God counts all those who have trusted in Jesus by faith as being perfectly righteous, just like Jesus is righteous. And because of that, then when the day of judgment comes, we'll be delivered not because we're actually righteous, but because Jesus is righteous and he's our representative. In other words, I've used this illustration before, and so if you've heard it before, still like be on the edge of your seat like you've never heard it before. Does that make sense? The picture here, the illustration here, is us picking out somebody in this room to shoot a three-point basketball shot for us. And here are the stakes. Here's what's on the line. If whoever we pick, and we're not going to, we're not going to vote right now on who that person is going to be. It's not going to be me. Um, definitely, you don't want that. But, but here's, here's what's on the line. Here's the, what's at stake. If the person makes the shot, they get one shot. If the person makes it, we all live. If the person misses it, we all die. Right? So that person is our representative. That person is shooting on behalf of us. That's not a perfect illustration. But that's an illustration of what Jesus did. He is the representative for all of humanity. And guess what? He made the shot. He lived the perfectly righteous life that we couldn't live as our representative. And since he made the shot and lived the perfectly righteous life we couldn't live, and since he's our representative, then God considers us as having made the shot and been perfectly righteous just like him. That's true for all those who have trusted and placed their faith in Jesus. And because of that then, when the day of judgment comes, we can be delivered not because we're righteous, but because Jesus is our representative and he's righteous on our behalf. What that means then is that the one thing that ultimately matters in this life no amount of money can buy it. Instead, it was freely given to us with no cost by Jesus. The reality of that, you, you keep that in mind, the reality of that helps us to not elevate money to a position that it doesn't deserve, and it helps keep money in a rightful position in our minds and also in our hearts, which then leads to this third principle that Proverbs 11 teaches us about money, and we've, we've seen this before a few weeks ago, but third principle is this, P putting up security, putting up security for someone else's debt is dangerous, it's dangerous. So we talked about this, right, this shouldn't be new if you've been here for any length of time, but Proverbs 6 talked about this, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there and elaborate on this in and, and a lot of ways, because talked about it in Proverbs 6, but this is what Solomon is saying again here in verse 15. Look down at verse 15 with me. Solomon says, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking, hand, but, but he who hates striking hands and pledge is secure. So again, what Solomon is describing here is a situation in which somebody is putting up security or putting up collateral for someone else's debt. In other words, it would be kind of like co-signing a loan uh, for someone else in our day. That if you do that and that person isn't able to pay off, pay off their loan, then you're liable for it. You're, you're responsible to pay it off for them. 
the danger of that, the problem with that is that, is that you don't know exactly where you'll be financially if that day comes and if you're even going to be able to do that. So you're presuming um, in, in situations like this. So Solomon here is warning against this. He's cautioning us against this. He's saying that putting up security for someone else's debt is dangerous. He's saying that it's not wise. And so then, as I mentioned when I preached it on this in Proverbs chapter 6, that there may be exceptions to this uh, when it comes to this warning that's being made here. If you remember as we, when we talked in Proverbs 6, Proverbs aren't like dogmatic, absolute, black and white commands. Instead, they're wise principles for living. They're wise principles for, and guidelines for, for life. In, in saying that, though, don't just treat that verse that way. Oh, it's not a command. It's just a wise principle. So, you know, whatever. You know. Instead, still a warning, still wise. And so if you, if you do venture out um, in, in putting up security for someone else's debt, you still need to be aware of the danger. You still need to be aware of the, 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 the wisdom that Solomon is, is giving us here. And you need to weigh those warnings as you seek to make that decision in your life. Which then leads to the, there's a lot more that could be said here. Go back to the sermon in Proverbs 6. But fourth principle then we see here is this. It's that your character is more important to God than your money. Your character is more important to God than your money. We see this in the very next verse, in verse 16. Look there with me. Solomon says, a gracious woman gets honor and violent men get riches. So what Solomon's doing here, he's comparing these two different types of people and he's describing the outcomes or the, the results, the consequences of their actions or of their character. And he says, so those who are violent, right? They, they, and so that's somebody who's taking people's money by force. They get riches, and so that's their reward, right? That's the outcome. That's the result of being violent. You get riches. But the woman here who is gracious, meaning she's kind, she acts for the benefit of others without expecting anything in return. A, a woman like that, a person like that, she receives something a whole lot more important than riches. She receives something that's greater than riches. She receives honor. And we see the same exact thing repeated a couple verses later in verse 18. Look there with me. Verse 18 says, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. So again, Solomon is comparing these two different types of people and the consequences or the results of their character and of their actions. And he says that the wicked earn deceptive wages so again, that, that's all they receive. They deceive people, they defraud people, they cheat people, and they, they earn deceptive wages, so that, that's all they earn, that's all they receive. Those who sow righteousness, though, meaning those who live lives of righteousness, they receive a sure reward. And if you look in the very next verse, in verse 19, and then also into verse 20, you see what that sure reward is. It's life. They get to live. Ultimately, it's referring to eternal, eternal life. And, and this is the point here in, in these Proverbs here. That what they're showing us, they're showing us 
through these outcomes and results and consequences of behavior and actions, they're, they're showing us what's ultimately important to God. That what's ultimately important to God isn't how wealthy a person is. That what's ultimately important to God is a person's character. What's ultimately important to God is, is whether or not a person's gracious. What's ultimately important to God is whether or not a person is sowing righteousness in their life. Like, that's the person that God honors. That's the person that God rewards. Like, you can have all the money in the world, but if your heart is violent, if your heart is deceptive, then your money means absolutely nothing to God. Or you, you can be the poorest person in the world, but if your heart is gracious, if your heart is kind, if your heart is, is sowing righteousness, then you'll be honored and rewarded by the Lord. What ultimately matters to God isn't how much money you have. What ultimately matters to God is your character. Your character is more important to God than money. God honors, he, he rewards people not based upon their money, but ultimately rewards and honors those based upon their character, which is really important for us to remember, right? Because everything around us, and in many cases, everything inside of us, wants to say the exact opposite of this and wants us to believe that our money and how much money we have is what ultimately defines us. It's what our ultimate identity truly is. And therefore, our money is, is ultimately more important than our character. That we live in a culture and a context in which character isn't rewarded and honored, but money is. And it's easy for us to buy into that as well. And so then think about this, right? If you've bought into this, think about and just evaluate your own heart, your own life, and whether or not just how you live displays that you believe that money is more important than your character. And so here are some questions, here are some examples. So when you fill out your, your tax returns, are you, are you completely honest? Is everything that you're, you're marking there and is it true? Or do you fudge a little bit just so you can save some money? When you fill out expense reports at work or log your hours at work, do you pad it? Are you completely honest? Just simple. Or do you fudge a little bit so you can make some more money? If your boss pays you to work 40 hours a week, do you spend 10 of those hours scrolling on your phone and goofing around and not working? Are there goods or services you're receiving and that you should be paying for, but that you're not? Like when you sell your house, uh-oh, do, do you disclose everything in that disclosure agreement? Or do you keep certain things hidden so you can make more money? Like, like here, here's the point. Never compromise your character for the sake of earning a few extra dollars. It, it's not worth it. Like, always be honest, always be truthful, always do the right thing. Your character is more important than your money. This then leads to principle number five, which is this. Generosity leads to blessing, but stinginess does not. 
Generosity leads to blessing, but stinginess does not. See this a few verses later there in, in verse, starting there in verse 24. Look there with me in verse 24, 25, and 26. Solomon writes this. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another with, withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. So those three verses there, they're teaching the same exact basic truth. And that same exact truth is this. It's that the one who is generous, the one who gives freely, the one who blesses others, they'll grow richer and be enriched and blessed. While those who are stingy, those who hoard, those who hold on to their money, they'll suffer want and they'll be cursed by others. Like that's the basic point that those three Proverbs are teaching there in verse 24 and 25 and, and 26. In saying that though, it's important to remember the genre of Proverbs and how Proverbs work. They're not necessarily teaching that all generous people, like every single generous person who's ever lived, will become rich in this life. And that all stingy people will become poor. That may be true. That may not be true. Like I think we all know stingy people who are really rich and, and really wealthy. And we all know really generous people who, are, who, who end up being poor. And so this isn't a guarantee that, that all generous people will become rich in this life and that all stingy people will become poor in this life. That may, that may or may not be true in this life. But this will definitely be true in the life to come. Even if it's not immediately true in this life right now. In other words, when Jesus returns in judgment, then there's going to be this great reversal. That those who are generous and who have trusted in Jesus by faith, they're going to receive a great treasure. They're going to receive a rich inheritance. They're going to receive a, a, an eternal kingdom. While those who are stingy and who haven't trusted in Jesus by faith, then on that day of judgment, they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose absolutely everything that they've accumulated and stored up in this life, and they're going to suffer eternal conscious torment in hell forever. And so then do you see how the reality then of, of those two truths then motivate us when it comes to being generous to others and, and freely giving to others rather than being stingy and, and hoarding stuff for ourselves? Like, here, here's how it motivates us. Like, when you know that you're going to inherit an eternal treasure, when you know that you're an heir of a kingdom in the, in the world to come, and if you know that you're going to lose everything that you accumulate and store up in this life, then the reality of those truths, like they free us from being stingy. They free us from storing and accumulating all this stuff. The reality of those truths frees us to be generous and to freely give to others. I like how Jesus talks about that he, with his disciples in Luke 12, 32 and 33. 
he tells his disciples, he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Do you know what the very next words are that Jesus tells his disciples then? Sell your possessions and give. You know why they're able to do that? Because they're heirs of a kingdom. They're going to inherit a kingdom. And so when you're going to inherit a kingdom, you can give all your stuff away here. You can sell your stuff here. You can be generous here. You can freely give here. There's no need to stockpile and accumulate and store here. Because you're an, you're an heir of a kingdom and a treasure and inheritance that is to come. And think about this. Jesus didn't just teach on this. Like Jesus lived this out. Like aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't stingy? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't hoard? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't hold on to the things that were rightfully his? Aren't you glad that Jesus generously sacrificed and Jesus freely gave himself to the point of death on a cross for our sins? And one of the reasons that he was able to do that is because he knew that a kingdom was on the other side of it. He knew the great treasure was on the other side of it. He knew that he would be raised back to life and exalted and given a kingdom. And therefore it freed him to sacrifice and to generously give himself freely to the point of death, even death. On a cross. So then evaluate your heart, right? Like evaluate your budget when it comes to these things. When it comes to your generosity. Are you stingy? Do you hoard? Do people have to pry things out of your hand? Are you generous? Do you give freely? Willingly? Do you live as if this earth is, is, is your heaven? Do you, do you have a hard time being generous because you're so focused on building your kingdom here on this earth and accumulating stuff for your kingdom here on this earth? Whereas the reality of the kingdom to come, the treasure to come, freed you to be generous with your stuff. Which then leads to the sixth and final principle about money we learn in this chapter, and it's this. It's that trusting in riches leads to falling while trusting in God's, while trusting in God leads to flourishing. Let me repeat that. Trusting in riches, riches leads to falling while trusting in God leads to flourishing. I know that sounds really cheesy, but that's what verse 28 says. Look at verse 28 there. It says, whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous and the righteous are those who fear God. They're those who trust God. The righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And so then again, Solomon's contrasting these two groups here, right? He's contrasting those who trust in their riches with those who, who are righteous and who fear God and, and trust God. 
And he says that those who trust in their riches, they'll fall. They'll fall, meaning they're going to be doomed. They're going to, they're going to fall. They're going to be, ultimately be condemned. While those who are righteous, those who fear God and trust in God, they'll, they'll flourish. They'll have life. They'll, they'll experience abundant life, eternal life, and the life to come. But what's ultimately going to determine whether or not you fall or whether or not you flourish is what you're trusting in. If you're trusting in money, then you're going to fall. You're going to be doomed. But the righteous who trust in God by faith will flourish. And so then, how can we then assess our hearts in the midst of a materialistic, wealthy culture in which we live to be able to determine whether or not we're trusting in God or trusting in wealth and trusting in money and trusting in possessions. Well, here are some signs, some, some indicators to help you assess what you're really trusting in. And be honest here. One sign is that you worry a lot about money. You're anxious a lot about money. Another sign is that your joy and happiness comes and goes. It's dependent upon money. It's dependent upon possessions or your lack thereof. Another sign is that you find your value and worth in money or your lack thereof. When you have money and, and nice possessions, then it makes you feel important. It makes you feel significant. When you get rid of that sorry car and you begin to drive a nicer car, you just kind of sit up a little more straight as you're, you're, driving, you're, you're driving around. But when you don't make as much money, when you don't have as nice possessions, it makes you feel inferior to others. It makes you feel insignificant when you're around others who might have more than what you have. Another sign is that you find security in money. You find security in possessions. In other words, you struggle with being content with what you have. You, you always want the, the next best thing. You always want the nicer thing, the bigger thing, the newer thing. So you're always restless. You're always, you're always discontent. Or another sign is that when life gets difficult, you run to money. When life gets difficult, you run to possessions to comfort you, to help you cope. So you go buy something new. You go shopping or you run to something that you already have. Like those are some signs. This is serious business, that you're trusting in money as opposed to trusting in Jesus. There are signs that you're looking to money to, to be and do for you what only Jesus was meant to be and do for you. Or another way to say it is that you, these are signs that you're looking to money to be your functional savior for you. That instead of, of trusting in Jesus, looking to Jesus for joy and contentment and security and worth and value and significance and comfort and your refuge in times of trouble, you look to money, you look to possessions, you look to wealth instead. But here's the, here's the kicker in all this. The only problem in doing that is that money makes a really bad savior. Like money can't do for you what Jesus has done for you. 
Like money can buy you a new TV, but it can't buy you heaven. Money can buy you new clothes, but it can't buy you righteousness. Money can buy you a new phone, but it can't buy you God's forgiveness. Money can buy you a great education, but money can't buy you eternal life. Money can buy you your dream vacation, but it can't buy you lasting hope. Money can buy you just fill in the blank, but it can't buy you ultimate joy and ultimate peace and ultimate eternal satisfaction. Those things can only be found in the person of Jesus, and he's purchased those things for you himself, and he, he, he now, you can't buy them, he, he just freely gives them to you. And because of that then, then why in the world would any of us ever trust money? Instead, it only, it's smart, like it's wise to trust Jesus instead. Like money, money can be used to do a whole lot of good things in this life. But money makes a horrible savior. It makes a horrible God. So then don't, don't trust money. Don't worship money. Don't love money. Instead, trust Jesus, worship Jesus, and love him more than you love money. Those are six principles that we learn here when it comes to money in our lives and how we view and handle money in our lives. And I, I pray that the result of that will give us and cause us to live distinct at our workplace, to live distinct in our neighborhoods, to live distinct in our family relationships with others. That when they look at us and they look at how we handle and how we live and how we view money and possessions, that it would cause people to, to see, huh, man, those, 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 those people are different. Um, they, they, they're, they're, money's not their God. They're, they're not worshiping the money. They're not in this rat chase and always weighed down with anxiety and, and, and worry and, and all these things of, of money and always having to have the nicest, newest, best next thing. And that it would allow people and cause people to ask, hey, what's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, and you would help them and share with them and help them to be able to see, man, hey, that, that thing you're chasing after, um, I found something and someone a whole lot better. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time together. And thank you for the practicality just of your word and the warnings of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see just in our time together, Lord, there is nothing wrong, inherently wrong with money. But at the same time, it is really dangerous. And so, Lord, I pray that because of that, that we would heed your wisdom, that we would not just think that we're above this, that we would not even, that we would not think that, oh, of course I'm not trusting in money. Lord, there, there are small ways in which all of us in some way, shape, or form are trusting and relying upon money for different ways and different things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would expose that in our hearts I pray that you would help us to see that our view, our use of money exposes and reveals a lot about what we truly treasure in our hearts. And because of that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see more than anything that Jesus is better, that Jesus provides us everything that we absolutely need, and Jesus provides us what's ultimate in this life, something that money ultimately can't buy, only something that Jesus has bought for us and given to us freely as a gift. And so, Lord, help us to put money in its rightful position, in its rightful place, and to put Jesus in his rightful position 
in place as well. It's in his name that we pray these things.